Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. This month, we're returning to the situation in Hong Kong. It's a city transformed in recent months as Beijing tightens its grip to a vice. The legislature is now free of democratic politicians who quit. Forty-seven are now charged under the national security legislation after holding primary elections. Many are remanded without bail. Even this is not enough. Beijing's introducing new election rules, which will basically stop Democrats from running. Civil servants are having to swear oaths of office. The media is under attack. The government broadcaster RTHK is having programs pulled left, right, and centre. The purge is even spreading to the arts world, with pro-Beijing legislators calling for censorship inside a new art museum, M+. We'll be talking to two Hong Kong politicians, both from the Democratic camp, one in exile and one still in Hong Kong. The latter is Emily Lau, the former chairperson of the Hong Kong Democrats and a former member of the Hong Kong Legislative Council. But first, we'll be talking to another former legislator who has become a fugitive. Ted Huey fled to Europe on bail for criminal charges, including money laundering, in 2019. He's also under national security investigation after taking part in that primary, where he was selected as the candidate for Hong Kong Island. Huey recently became the first Hong Kong politician to be granted a travel exemption by the Australian government during the pandemic. Ted, you've been mocked by the pro-Beijing press, who say you left London because you couldn't afford the lifestyle. I mean, put the record straight. Why is it that you moved to Australia? Yeah, it was quite laughable that they they think it that way. The reason that why I traveled to Australia, there are quite a few reasons.、Um, the first reason being that I spent、uh, three months in the UK. And I had the opportunity to talk to、uh, people like Nathan Law and other of my Hong Kongers colleagues、uh, in exile. So、uh, we exchanged、uh, our thoughts of、uh, international advocacy and our area of focus. And so I feel that it's time for a division of labor, so as to widen、uh, the battlefront of international lobbying. So that、uh, they can be more focused on the UK and Europe, and also we have counterparts in North America. So it it will be my responsibility to focus on、uh, Australia and New Zealand, and also Asian Pacific regions. And so that's one that's division of labor and out of strategies. That's one thing. The other thing is, of course,、uh, if you look at Australia and New Zealand's immigration policies and their China policies, are very much influenced by their trade relationship with Beijing. So I I feel that I have more room for lobbying here in terms of、uh, trade policies、uh, regarding the two countries, and also a smaller reasons that、uh, my families、uh, have. Relatives and friends, they have more here in Australia. That's why it's easier for them to,、uh, to be supported. That's why when I feel they settled and I'm free to go farther away around the globe to talk about the human rights situations in Hong Kong. So these are the reasons why I travel to Australia. 
Ted, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about what we should read into the fact that the Australian government approved your application um, within a couple of days, which is amazing for my government, and got you on a repatriation flight despite the fact that our borders are closed more or less due to COVID-19. Uh, I mean, most of the government statements to date have been about providing a pathway to citizenship for 12,000 Hong Kongers who are already here in Australia. But do you think what happened with you um, signals that the Australian government is open to helping more Hong Kong Democrats? Yes, it's a bit of a surprise to me too that when I applied for a visitor visa uh, during this pandemic and I am granted the visa like within a, almost around a month and then I also applied for travel exemptions so that I can enter uh, the border under uh, the border closure and uh, I was granted ex- exemptions like within uh, 24 hours. Wow, that, that, that's that's almost unheard of for our Department of Home Affairs. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm very grateful for the Australian government for that and also after I've been granted visa and exemptions, I had a hard time finding a commercial flight to Australia because all flights are cancelled knowing that borders closed. So I uh, contacted the Australian government for assistance and they allowed me to board the repatriation flight uh, with the conditions that I must undergo uh, a COVID test for three times. And then I, be, I have to undergo uh, mandatory quarantines, and but that would be it. So uh, I'm still very grateful. So everything was smooth and facilitated. Hmm. But you mentioned this this close trade relationship we have. I mean, do you think that uh, the Australian government will be willing to put that at risk by by broadening this gesture beyond you? Um, it's quite early for me to comment on that uh, because I'm only here for uh, less than two weeks. So uh, I've still yet to talk to uh, many parliamentarians and government officials, but I have a feeling that the Morrison government is quite strong and uh, critical on China and towards and for towards Beijing. And I've also observed that Australians is under Beijing's and unreasonable economic sanctions. So there are uh, tensions between uh, two nations. But yeah, I've yet to see, uh, for example, whether the Australian Parliament would pass uh, the legislation on the Magnitsky Act and whether there will be concrete sanctions uh, against Beijing. And also, will, will there be other uh, more flexible or hustle-free uh, lifeboat plans and visa schemes uh, tailored for Hong Kongers? And then I, I can make a fair comment on, on that after uh, seeing the results. I mean, it seems you know, almost extraordinary that we are now talking about, you know, lifeboat schemes for Hong Kongers. And I wanted to ask you about your situation because you're, you know, one of the most high profile fugitives from Hong Kong. There is, has been this one line of thinking recently that Beijing wants a Hong Kong without Hong Kongers. I've heard people say, keep the fishbowl, change the fish you know, that it would like to get rid of demanding Hong Kongers who want democracy, who can mobilize, who can protest, and have a much more pliant uh, population of migrants from the mainland. Is that too cynical a reading? Or do you think there's any kind of proof that that's happening? Uh, It's one possibility from my point of view. Now that you can see from the massive arrest of the prominent politicians and activists, 
if you look at the political spectrum that they represent, from the most moderate to the most radicals, it signifies that almost everyone, uh, uh, every uh, member from the oppositions, every dissent, will not be tolerated at all. So they will be either thrown to jails or forced to go uh, into exile, uh, like me. So my forecast is that oppositions can have very, very little uh, space for operations in Hong Kong, not to mention participating in public elections and getting a seat. So it's highly possible that uh, it's the strategy of uh, Beijing's, of the Hong Kong regimes, to just evict us all and evict all dissents and replacing us with other mainlanders and other loyals and patriotic Hong Kongers. And so I would say uh, with the change of also the electoral system, I would say this is definitely the death of Hong Kong's democracy and freedoms. So, but we need to fight back. We will. So it seems that even the, the pro-Beijing forces are a little bit uh, nervous about these electoral reforms with a, one of their leading analysts, uh, Xiu Xinpoor, pleading, don't go too far and kill the patient. I mean, do you have any sympathy for these pro-Beijing people who are suddenly realizing that they might yes, be marginalized I, I too? I think for one reason, they are uh, also afraid because with the change of the electoral system, it shows that uh, even how they play loyal to Beijing and they are not the trusted ones. Um, Beijing uh, ultimately only trusts themselves, but not any of their representatives in Hong Kong. So um, they, they are afraid that uh, they would be losing control as well as, as to resources that they get and the seeds that they get allocated by Beijing. And also, I, I think they don't want to show to perhaps international communities to the extremes that there's no opposition at all. So they want, they perhaps they want to keep one or two, like uh, the Macau parliament. Now there are always two, two or three of them or four of the Democrats oppositions uh, in place. So that as what we call declarations uh, of the so-called democracy that they have. So I, I think that would be the only reason I can think of. During the protests, um, people within the movement were talking about the strategy of Lam Chao, like crash and burn, like burn it all down and start again. But is that effectively what Beijing is now doing in Hong Kong? Because it's not just reconstructing the electoral system and the institutions, but it seems like there's this effort to kind of remold the population itself with patriotic education campaigns. I mean, do you think that can work? Um it's uh, a bit hard to say because on one hand, for people believing in Lam Tao, that means uh, to, to burn together, to burn with us. So this is going towards that direction. So it's showing uh, to every members of public in Hong Kong and showing to all the international communities that there's no democracy, there's no freedoms. Now uh, let's get realistic. And so uh, it's self-evident so that the West, free countries, can uh, be more comfortable in putting up economic sanctions or other lifeboat plans and all the boycotting and isolating gestures. So now the West can do that. But in terms of political power, uh, Hong Kongers are stripped off all the political rights, fundamental rights. So um, it's hard to say whether we are going towards directions 
that we Hong Kongers want or the protesters want, uh, because on one hand, we've lost everything, lost every inch of our freedoms. But on the other hand, we are getting to the realities. Now, we don't have to fake that we have freedoms. We don't have to tolerate the, the kind of fake freedoms that we, we've been promised and provided. So now uh, people are so awakened. So I, I think in, in one sense, uh, we, it gives people hope uh, under uh, the ultimate despair that uh, now we, we know the only uh, route for us uh, is to fight back. I mean, Ted, thinking about that hope, um, and can we talk a little bit about the 2021 Hong Kong Charter, uh, which is a new agreement you launched this week with seven other exiled Hong Kong activists. Um, what are you hoping to achieve well, with this charter? Yes, if you look at the charter and it lays out the fundamental principles and uh, the what uh, we believe and what are the pathways uh, to achieve those uh, freedoms and democracies that we are pursuing. So it also, um, more importantly, uh, unites us uh, all as eight of former legislators or politicians or activists, because in the past, people, I, I would guess that Hong Kong people don't, uh, didn't notice that we can work together because we represent uh, very different uh, political spectrums, even among the Democrats, or or those uh, even never called themselves Democrats, but on the uh, of course on the side of the on the camp of the freedom and uh, democracy camp. Now that it, it's a sign that we all work together, and even though we have differences in the past as to our, our political goal and ultimate values. But now there's only one camp, a, a camp for reviving Hong Kong. So it's a gesture of unity and solidarity and giving an important message to Hong Kongers that we have not given up and we have not broken up, uh, even we're outside and we strive to fight back and we're inviting um, more Hong Kongers to join our efforts. And so it's, it's more of a solidarity gesture to Hong Kongers and as well as to international communities. I wanted to ask you about the language of the charter. I mean, you call for the liberation of Hong Kong and the end of China's one party rule. And the Security Bureau, which is the new bureau set up under national security legislation, has already said that kind of language means the charter is illegal and that Hong Kongers, wherever they are in the world, shouldn't sign it because that would put them in breach of national security legislation. Do you think that kind of response means that it'll be hard to find people who'll sign it because you could effectively you know, be handing over a list of people to arrest if it's public? That's true. I believe so. When we drafted uh, the charter, we didn't particularly consider whether it's legal or illegal under the national security law uh, in the Hong Kong regime's sense, because it would be uh, unreasonable and it can be ridiculous if we are, we are outside and we enjoy freedoms and we still care about what the Hong Kong government says. So we didn't pay a lot of attention on that. But uh, we, of course, were alerted that if uh, Hong Kong 
people within Hong Kong now signs it, it would be dangerous anyway, because there, there can be arbitrary arrest uh, by the regimes. So we, we expected that, uh, it's our expectations that most people signing it would be uh, Hong, Kong, uh, Hong Kongers exiles, Hong Kong diaspora. So we actually made it clear on the charters that uh, those are the conditions for uh, people who uh, wish to sign uh, the charter. So yes, I, I realize and admit that there, there's a real danger for Hong Kongers inside Hong Kong signing it. But even if you sign it, it means you can't effectively go back. Um, even if they have signed it, they can withdraw. And I I've, we, we already have cases of Hong Kongers signing it, but we understand that it's, it can be dangerous for them. And we have communications and, and they have decided that it, they should withdraw from uh, withdraw the signatures. So there's mechanisms uh, of that. So we also have uh, other safety mechanisms in terms of privacy, uh, in terms of server security. So we strive to protect privacy and, and the confidentialities of the people signing it. Thinking back over the last couple of years in the movement and how things played out, one criticism that's often put forward of the Tiananmen movement is that they overplayed their hand and gave an opportunity to conservatives to do things that they'd probably always wanted to do. Uh, I mean, in retrospect, did the anti-extradition movement maybe overplay its hand a bit uh, and give Beijing a pretext? Uh, do you think in some ways it might have been better to stop at the moment that Carrie Lam um, withdrew the extradition bill rather than continuing to push? I totally disagree to that argument. Because for Hong Kongers, we've been fighting for democracy starting from the 80s, even before Hong Kong's handed back to China. And even after the handover, we've tried every means, every peaceful ways, demonstrations, um, massive ones, uh, tens of thousands, millions. And we've tried uh, talking at the tables uh, represented uh, by politicians, by my former party colleagues at the liaison's office, talking directly to Beijing's officials for a bargain for a political reform. And we've tried civil disobedience. We've tried everything. And that time, at that time, uh, civil dis disobedience led by Bani Tai was purely peaceful. So I, I cannot imagine in what other ways and, and how many years uh, to come uh, it will take for us to, to get uh, any improvements on our degree of the, uh, democracies. So I'd rather, I call, call me radical, I'd rather go to the extremes to, so that Hong Kong people are all awakened. So to realize that uh, this regime is not trustworthy at all. We've trusted Beijing for uh, decades and none of the promises have been fulfilled. And there's no, no more reasons that we, we should be leaving in Beijing anymore. And so I, I believe that rights and freedoms is for us to, to fight to achieve. It's not to be granted by, by mercy of Beijing. So um, I, I believe after 2019, the anti-extradition movement, uh, Hong Kong people are convinced that they have to fight to achieve uh, their, ba their basic fundamental rights. And I, I, I hope that and I believe that this, uh, the spirit is still high and now people are at its most powerful moment, even at our low, lowest political participation because of the change of the electoral system. 
but the spirits are highest historical high. And I believe that uh, given at one opportunities, Hong Kong people will rise again and we'll be back to the streets. Millions of us will be there. And so it's only a matter of time. I mean, think of one specific incident. I mean, you were one of the people who was there inside Poly University. I mean, did the events that unfolded there change the way you saw the struggle? Yes, yes. And of course, I'm not talking about the violence involved. I'm just talking about how unimaginable that the regimes will be attacking students and storming in uh, universities that's supposed to be uh, a place uh, signifying freedoms. And now that the students there uh, were so scared, they were teenagers, they were at their early 20s, and how cruel and the regime was uh, to be physically abusing them. Even though they are fight backs, they have their, their weapons or fighting packs, but uh, who would be uh, the one initiating all the fights? And so there's, there's a slogan also by the students that it's the Hong Kong regimes who has taught them that peaceful uh, demonstration is totally useless. And I totally buy it. So they have been peaceful for decades. So what, what's more can you ask for from the students and from the from people of Hong Kong? It seems to me that, I mean, you say it's a moment of hope, but among Hong Kongers, both in Hong Kong and in exile, what I'm often hearing is this just sense of complete despondency of not knowing what to do next, whether to return back to Hong Kong or what impact, if any, they could have if if they stay outside Hong Kong. Um, I think there's a real sense of um, drift and a sense that, you know, if you look at the historical role played by exiled activists and dissidents in China, if you look at the example of the Tiananmen exiles, they really found that they were quite limited in their influence once they left um, China. I mean, what would you say to those those people? And, you know, it's something that I've just been hearing more and more in recent weeks, that Hong Kong is finished, it's over, there's nothing left that can be done. Yes, this is the question I get uh, quite frequently as well. Um, what else can we do? So I, I believe that, uh, I, and I also understand that Hong Kongers can feel very desperate, feel very powerless. But then uh, at the same time, I would say majority of Hong Kongers uh, are so awakened. And that's why given a fair, open and fair elections, we would get a landslide win like we did in 2019 uh, in the district council elections. So uh, I would say uh, we've lost political powers. We've lost uh, constitutional and institutional powers uh, in, under the mechanisms, but we've won uh, people's hearts and, and it's one-sided. And I believe that's why uh, the, Be the Beijing re regime is so afraid of us winning uh, further elections in the future. That's why it has to change the electoral system. But all I need to say is that now what we need to do is to, of course, not to put ourselves in danger. In Chinese, we, we have a saying not to give our heads to, to the regimes. And it would be unwise to confront the regime directly and 
to be thrown to jail to all of us. It would be unwise. So what we need to do is to nurture the civil society and to uh, make private and public records of what's happening and the, all the ridiculous things that we have to write down uh, into records and also write down into our hearts. And also we need to continue developing uh, the yellow economy. And it's not just about economy, it's just about people's spirits. And finally, I wanted to ask you a personal question about your life as an exile. Uh, recently here in Melbourne, there's been this retrospective of the Hong Kong filmmaker Wong Kar Wai. And I've been to a lot of the films and I noticed that when the lights come up, there's a lot of Hong Kongers who are just sitting in the seats and they've been weeping as they look at these films and they see the city that they remember the way that it used to be. I mean, what for you are the things um, that you miss the most about Hong Kong? What are the things that, you know, make you weep when you think about them? Yeah, I kind of share similar sentiments as I'm here, uh, even I'm only away from home for three months. But as I watch movies, and I watched the one one of those from by Wong Kar Wai as well, uh, looking at those scenes and places that I'm so familiar familiar to, and and the people and all the trams in Hong Kong, and and the streets, yeah, I I do miss Hong Kong. But then having said that, it's only uh, three months that I'm away from home. So if you ask me what I miss Hong Kong the most, now I would say I, I miss the time that I was in in the protest in 2019 and I marched with a massive number of people and even facing riot police, even being uh, 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 facing police brutality. But it was the time I felt most meaningful and powerful as people's representative. Because I, there are other times I were uh, speaking in front of the president's in, inside chamber of the legislature. I, I felt that every moment and every word I uttered inside chamber was an endorsement to the very undemocratic and unfair system in Hong Kong. And I didn't feel I can change anything inside the chamber as politicians. But I felt I changed a lot in people's heart when I marched with the people, when I stand in with the people. So those are the, the freedoms that I, I miss, the freedoms that I, I enjoyed in, in the land of Hong Kong, in demonstrations, in protests. And that, that's the thing that I really uh, treasure now, as I recall. That was former Hong Kong legislator Ted Huey, now in exile in Australia. Now I'm joined from Hong Kong by Emily Lau, a former legislator and the former chairperson of the Democratic Party. Emily, you've just come back from visiting another former chairman of the Democratic Party, Wu Chi Wai, who's one of the 47 who are being tried on national security charges, and he's being held in prison right now. I mean, what can you tell us about the kind of conditions in which they're being held? Well, of course, I was not allowed to go into the cell. To to I just saw Chiwai because he was brought out to meet with me and uh, Mr. Kenneth Leung. But he seemed to be in very good spirits. He was 
very happy and uh, you know very talkative and uh, and the food he said was good and he had time to do exercise so uh, I don't think he has been mistreated uh, but of course it's very sad to see them uh, locked up and uh, I think it's crazy because they took part in an unofficial primary election and uh, and the prosecution said they needed several months to conduct investigation and in the meantime instead of giving them bail so that they can be out and free uh, they the prosecution said these people have to be locked up while they the police go and do investigation and they proposed to the court to have another hearing at the end of may and maybe by then they would have done more investigation and if they still haven't uh, done their job properly they may ask the court to give them another few months i, I think this is quite outrageous yeah i mean even the way the bail hearings were held was extraordinary you know we saw 47 people in court for extremely long periods of time i think six of them were taken to hospital during those hearings um, some were released on bail and then the government immediately appealed that. Um, what can we read for, from that whole saga about the state of um, the rule of law and legal process in Hong Kong? Well, I, I think that whole saga really left Hong Kong and uh, the state of rule of law, independence of the judiciary in the dirt and uh, some uh, legal uh, practitioners and academics said it made the Hong Kong judiciary looks worse than uh, the judiciary in some third world countries. Well, the thing is, in the past, uh, the Hong Kong judiciary and you know Hong Kong's respect for the rule of law is very, very highly regarded in the international community. And uh, but now to see that it has deteriorated to this state of affairs it is quite shocking. And so because on the first day of the hearing, uh, the judge uh, just allowed the thing to go on and on past midnight, past 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. And then one uh, accused uh, fainted and then others said they were unwell and the ambulances have to be sent for to take them to hospital. And it was about 3 a.m. that the judge finally decided to adjourn. And so it is really quite unthinkable. Uh, I mean, how can you cram 47 people into the courtroom and their lawyers and also then the family members and the press and the people out members of the public I was outside there uh, queuing up and uh, and of course there were more than a thousand people who, who just circled around uh, snaked around the compound of the Western magistracy and of course most of us could not get in and so when I went there again the following day and the media came up and asked me I said this is ridiculous it's quite disgraceful you know, that people had to be, you know, sent to hospital because they fainted. Oh, it's really very, very sad. And, and, and what is most sad is that, you know, that it seems the judiciary is no longer uh, the independent judiciary that uh, we, we used to have and respect.
And because Hong Kong has never had democracy, and the thing that is the protector of our freedoms are the courts. And now if that line of defense crumbles, then <laughs> uh, we have nothing. We are completely naked. It's very sad. Because in any case, it seems that the national security legislation will trump the basic law in Hong Kong's courts. And the kind of charges that we've seen, uh, you know, quite unexpected that standing in a primary election could constitute conspiracy to commit subversion, that, you know, quoting protest slogans that hundreds of thousands of people have quoted could also, you know, be um, seen as subversion. I mean, is it clear at all where the red lines are nowadays? I don't think so. And, uh, of course, there are offences listed in the uh, national security law, but uh, I don't think anyone is that clear where the red lines are, and particularly when they are shifting all the time. So that's why people are very apprehensive and very alarmed. And, uh, but I would not say that we have all completely written off our judges. I think there are some who are trying very hard and uh, of course they are under attack by Beijing and uh, and they they will do their best and of course we also have uh, foreign judges judges from uh, the UK from Canada and Australia who have been invited to sit as overseas non-permanent judge in our court of final appeal and this is something that is uh, uh, provided for in the basic law, which is our mini constitution. And of course, if things, the situation becomes so bad, uh, some of the judges may say, well, there's not much point in me coming here to Hong Kong because their presence is supposed to show that uh, Hong Kong court, uh, the CFA, the court of final yeah. appeal is very independent, very objective and fair and that these very eminent judges from Commonwealth countries uh, would come and sit with Hong Kong judges. And that has always been the case, that every time when we have the Court of Final Appeal uh, meeting, and they have five judges, always one is from overseas. Uh, but in the case of Jimmy Lai, when he uh, applied for bail, uh, there was no overseas judge. And because it, it, it um, involved the national security law, I don't know whether that is going to be the case in future. And if so, uh, some judges, or maybe all of them, uh, may not want to come anymore. One Australian judge has already left. And, uh, and of course, I think the financial community and the international community and many Hong Kong people are looking at this very closely, because it is a very important signal. If all the overseas judges pull out, then it's a sign that uh, maybe <laughs> no more rule of law, no more independence of the judiciary in Hong Kong. But it, it seems that in Beijing's campaign in Hong Kong, there are so many different fronts that are opening up all at once. I mean, in the last few weeks, we're seeing 
attempts to tighten control over the media, education, the judiciary, the arts sector, even saying you need patriotic people in charge of the hospital authority. How does that affect the mood in Hong Kong? I've heard people talk about white terror. You know, is that an appropriate way of talking about the mood? I think that's a way of describing the feeling of some people. I don't know, you know, you just cannot quantify. But of course, to be fair, there are people who think that is right because they said what happened in the last few years was horrendous and only Beijing can help to set things right. So this is a very, very polarized community, very split. There are people who are you say patriotic, who are very loyal and supportive of Beijing. And there are those who are, I think they're also patriotic, but they are very worried and very concerned. And some who can will get out and uh, some who cannot get out. And they are very frightened and uh, they conduct self-censorship. So it is a very, very sad city because once, I mean, not too long ago, Hong Kong was a very vibrant city, free safe, underpinned by the rule of law. And it seems that's all disappearing before our very eyes. I mean, you talk about the loyalists, but even those very loyal to Beijing appear now to be out of favor. You know, the Democratic Alliance for the Betterment of Hong Kong has been a very pro-Beijing party, but they've been complaining they've been left out. And we're seeing these new political parties appear like the Bauhinia Party, which are, you know, people who are not known in Hong Kong politics at all. Is that, do you think, a sign that Beijingers do not see Hong Kong as even the most loyal ones as trustworthy? Well, I think it's no secret that Beijing is furious, is very angry with what happened in the last few years with, you know, all the uh, big demonstrations, what they call riots, what they call confrontations with the police, and uh, so on and so on. They are furious. And of course, I'm sure they were not happy. And they're not happy with Carrie Lam, the chief executive, and the pro-Beijing political parties, because they did not help Hong Kong to solve the problems. And they are also, of course, angry with the protesters, with the uh, opposition parties. So I don't know how they're going to fix it. If they're going to fix it by bringing in some people who they think are loyal to them and who have not much experience in running Hong Kong or knowing what the people want, I don't think, I don't think they'll get what they want. <laughs> I, I don't think it's a question of, oh, let's pull out of the hat a few patriots and they can run Hong Kong for us. It's, it doesn't happen like that. I, I worked as a politician, as a legislator for 25 years. I have stood and won seven elections. I have never lost an election. And in the past, I have formed coalition with different political parties before and after 97. And when we were allowed to have discussion, to have compromise, we come up with proposals and we gave to the administration. And they say, okay, carry it out. And that was the time when the Hong Kong people were so happy with the legislature. But then Beijing would not allow us to work together. So I don't know what, what they are thinking of doing. I don't think they're going to get what they want because it, you just get in a bunch of people who have no experience 
who may equally have a lot of vested interests, always looking over their shoulder to what Beijing wants. There's no way to govern Hong Kong. And, and I mean, finally, what about your own future? I mean, you've been very outspoken. And as you say, nobody knows where the lines are. Aren't you worried about your own safety in, in the future? Well, it, well, of course, if I tell you, oh, no problem, I'm safe, nothing will happen to me. And then you will say, oh, your brain needs examining. <laughs> so I'm not going to say that to you. But neither will I say, hey, don't worry, I'm going to be arrested and locked up tomorrow. <laughs> but that may happen. Who knows? But I'm not going to allow that to intimidate me into silence. But by continuing to speak out, to talk to you and others, of course, people have told me I, I may be at risk. But then so what? I mean, if you want to defend, to fight for things you believe in, the principles and the ideals, as I said earlier, you have to take a risk. And if you're not lucky, you get arrested. Well, huh, that's life. That was Emily Lau, former chair of the Hong Kong Democrats and a former Hong Kong legislator. I'm Graham Smith and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Ted Hui and Emily Lau, and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. And a reminder, our fifth anniversary is coming soon, where we try to answer your burning China questions. The itch you just can't scratch. The thing that has you waking up in the night. It might be wondering... What tea does Xi Jinping drink? Or how does Jiang Zemin fill his days? Contact us on our Facebook page or get in touch with us on Twitter. Editing for this episode was by Andy Hazel. Background research by Julia Bergen and Xu Chong. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now. (laughs) 